Hello everyone and welcome to Life of Brian, dot dot dot, Mannix that is. Uh, my name's Kevin Hillier, I'm the host and of course the star of the show, it's homeless, uh, is, uh, is, no, is Brian Mannix, who, who is homeless. Uh, hello. I am home. You always wanted to be in No Fixed Address, didn't you? Well, they were a good band, a good Australian band and um, now I, I find myself uh, living the dream of No Fixed Address, so <laughs> there you go. Yeah, remember that thing where you had that, that dream in your head uh, when you're growing up, you think, oh, I'd love to have no sort of uh, incumbents on me, uh, you know, no, no wor- not have to worry about the rent, not have to worry about a mortgage, not have to worry about that. Well, you've got that now. Yeah, well, that's all very good to think about. But um, are you telling you, you try living out of the case for a while. It's nah. just if the case gets thicker and thicker and then it, you just, as soon as you open the case, you go, oh, where are those socks? And, of course, they're always at the bottom and then you get shit all over the joint and, yeah, I can make a really tidy room look a mess in about 30 seconds. It's just, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, taking – settlement of my uh, my Georgian surf of paradise, but I've still got two and a half months of living out of the case, I guess. So You, you would not have been a good backpacker, would you? No. No, it would be terrible at the backpacking. Um, no, I just – I well, look, you know, I'm not bad at travelling light if I'm going away for, say, four or five days yeah, or, you know, a weekend because I'm used to that. But, you know, I'm going away for weeks and weeks at a time and – yeah, you've got to pick which clothes you're going to need. And, you know, travelling between Melbourne and Queensland, you know, I need a jacket for Melbourne, but I don't for Queensland. Um, I need shorts for Queensland, but I don't for Melbourne. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of, you know, anyway, enough about me whinging. Um, <laughs> well, we haven't got a show if we don't have that. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, well, there's plenty to whinge about. You got any whinges, Kev? We can talk no, about. No, I'm, I'm actually I'm pretty good at the moment. I'm uh, I'm I'm in a in a really good place, and I'm looking forward to bringing people this show because we've got two interviews in this show that I'm really happy with in terms of the people we got and when we sat down and talked to them, what we what we spoke about and what we got out of them. I think is really good stuff. The the the, the premier guest on this episode is Shane Howard, who is just a bloody ripper. He is a good bloke, and um, you know he. Solid Rock is probably one of the Australian classics and an important Australian classic. Yep, yep. And, um, but he's a lovely bloke and he's very interesting and very smart and um, that's just some of the reasons why we love him. Yep. 40 years ago as we speak, they were putting together the Spirit of Place album. They were, uh, you know, at Goanna Manor in West Melbourne and, and in recording studios uh, knocking the album together, which turned out to be, I think it went straight to number one in Melbourne, um, uh, and um, an album that's revered now. 40 years later, it's still revered, as it bloody well should be, because forget uh, Solid Rock for a minute, um, there's there's other great songs on that album that, uh, that if you haven't heard for a long time, go back and, and have a listen to it, because it really really is a bloody great album. Well, I, I concur, Mr Hillier. Yeah. I concur with that statement. Uh, no, it's a great album and um, a very, very interesting guy. So we were quite lucky to uh, have him join us Absolutely. On so we'll have a chat to uh, Shane shortly. And the other part of the show, of course, uh, has become now a bit of a uh, staple is I Love That Song. 
Oh, we love it. Oh, and let me read you the lyrics of this one because you know the lyrics of this one because you've performed this one live. I have. Hey, Mama, it's a long, long way to your borderland home where the butterflies play all day. Yes, it's – or yeah, it's a long, long way. And I'm awful hungry, you know. I could almost eat my words. I said I'd give up my vacation to take you right across the nation and your mother thinks I'm crazy too. I'll tell you what I think we should do. I Why we don't we – Pull in at a halfway hotel. Yes. Oh, God, do I love that song. It's a beauty. Um, yeah, no, really good song. And, uh, you know, it's good to get him on the show, Kev. It was a, a very good coup on your part. Yep. His name, the name, of course, of the band was Voyager. And the, the man who wrote the song and sang the song is Paul French, who these days is still performing. Uh, and uh, we tracked him down in, uh, in the UK. And uh, the song that got to uh, top ten here in Australia, the album I think went to number one um, back in 1979, uh, Halfway Hotel by Voyager by Paul French. We're going to talk to him. It was a good year for music, 1979. Um, I think uh, In the Flesh by Blondie came out. Um, there's a lot of songs that slipped into 1979, which we kind of think are 80s songs, but they're not. They're 79 songs, but... Um, and this is one of those songs. Yep. It's a great song from 1979. I love that song and uh, you'll love Paul French and uh, hearing the story of how it all got put together and how uh, he constructed the song and what he did. And there's some some really interesting little musical doodads in there that, I, I mean, was over my head, but I know you were really, really oh. quite surprised by what he did with it. Well, when it comes to doodads, uh, Paul's all, <laughs> over the, all over it. And, um we, we spoke in depth to him about his doodads mm. and uh, at first he didn't know what we were talking about and <laughs> thought we were being rude. Yes. But then after a little bit of explanation, he realised that doodads weren't what he thought and uh, then it all, all went rather well after that. Well, hang on. From a bloke who writes lyrics, hey, mama, can you feel the heat? My radiator's all dry and we're the only fools left in the street. He, he, can, uh, he can talk doodads as good as anybody else. Don't you worry Stop. about that. Don't when it comes worry. to do's and dads, he's the king. Yes. He's the king of the doodads. Now, if you don't uh, want to smash your doodads up against the wall and uh, and have carnage everywhere, there are people we know that you should talk to. And I th- think I know who they are. They're the Burkots. That's correct. And their number would be one three hundred triple five five seven six. And Kev, just why should you go to Murcots? Because you're not as good a driver as you think, Brian. No. You're a good driver. I will say something. I will. I will make a categorical statement here. You're a better driver in Queensland than you are in Victoria, because you stick out like dogs. What's it's in Queensland? Because you can drive. Well, because they yes, can't. I, they're not very good. Like, no. In fact, most of Queensland should get down to Murcotts, one three hundred triple five five seven six. I don't think they need a. I know. Yeah, that's the number. That's this, the one. So Queensland, get on the phone. And get down to Murcotts because, let's face it, you shit drivers. Yes, exactly. Murcotts.edu.au is the website. Uh, have a chat to them. Uh, advanced driving courses, defensive driving courses. They have gift certificates available, so give it as a present to someone who you know is a crap driver. Fix them up. Do them a favour. You don't. It, it, it avoid the elephant in the room. Don't worry about it. You can you can circumvent the elephant in the room. Go round it three times like a roundabout, and uh, and bang, you fix the problem. One three hundred five 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 seven six. All right, let's get to our first guest. It is Shane Howard uh, Goanna celebrating the fortieth anniversary of Spirit of Place, and we were lucky enough to have a chat with him. Hey, young Kevin, I'm Brian. How are you? Good, mate. How are you? The average to exceptional, mostly average. Yeah. <laughs> 
Ah, beautiful. Uh, hey, oh, um, ready to go, Kev? Yeah, you, you lead off, mate. Well, okay, Shane, uh, first question I'd like to ask you is, how do you think the Bombers are going to go this year? <laughs> I have no interest in the Bombers whatsoever, but I think um, I was a bit anxious about the Tigers after round one with Carlton. After round two and the doggy threw everything at Carlton and ended up with the same result as Richmond, and Richmond ended up with a much better result against GWS, I'm quite buoyed about Richmond's um, chances this year. I think the Bombers are in for a hard rebuilding era. Yeah. Hang on. I thought uh, you uh, were uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Don't, isn't there a family linkage with the Madden brothers there and you, and, uh, and shouldn't you be a Bombers supporter? Well, look, my mother, my mother would, um, my mother had no tribal loyalty whatsoever. She would go wherever her nephews were um, um, playing, and of course, um, she was a bomber supporter when Simon was playing for Essendon and Justin. But then Justin went to Carlton, and Simon retired, so she broke for Carlton. Then, so she, um, it was family loyalty, really, for Mum. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they were her, yeah, they were her brother's boys, yeah. Right. And they did backing vocals on uh, the Solid Rock album, didn't they? Very good on Spirit of Place, they did. Yes, part, yes. Part of, part of the Nestle's uh, Gentleman's Canteen Chorus, yeah. You know, their, um, their oldest brother, Paul, was actually the best footballer of the lot of them, was the one Kevin Sheedy was chasing. But he wanted to play music. He was a, he's a great guitar player, blues player. And... Um, in the end, he said to Sheedy, he said, oh, look, I'm not that interested. I just want to play music. And um, uh, But my brother's really keen, Simon, you know. So it's really interesting story that, I mean, Paul could would possibly, had he gone down the footy road, I reckon would have been a Brownlow medalist. Simon said that to me, that Paul was the best at the football of all of them. But as you say, went, went down Guitar Street and um, left the footy alone, but. You know where the music road leads to, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you, yeah, how, how was it uh, you know, back with the back with Goanna as a band and doing those shows with Midnight Oil? It was really interesting. It's funny, you know, um, this fell out of the sky. It wasn't really a plan. A promoter, uh, BT Brian Taranto, Love Police, came to us since only about six months ago and said... Um, how about doing WOMAD, WOMADELAIDE, you know, with Goanna? And I went, oh, Goanna, a lot of work. You know, like, bring everyone back together. It's a big job. But he was persistent and he was a big fan of the band. He came to Goanna Manor back in the 80s and when he was only a teenager. So he was a big supporter, a big fan, kept pressing on me. So I foolishly said yes to WOMADELAIDE. And, um, and then before I knew it, it was like... Um, how about doing some openers for the oils? <laughs> and I know Jim and Rob, and um, on their last lap, it seemed Goanna Midnight Oil, it seemed like a really uh, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. So the next thing you know, we're, uh, we might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. <laughs> so we agreed to have one rehearsal and just see. It's been a long time. So it, we had one yeah. rehearsal. And, you know, within about, within a minute, like the Rose and Mars, the harmonies were there, their incredible voices. Um, Graham Davidge, who was the original guitar player on that, on Solid Rock and all over Spirit Place, that album. And it was kind of all there. It was like, um, oh, no, now we have to do it. <laughs> so uh, the other interesting aspect, if I can be so indulgent, is um, 
after Goanna, I guess because there was a lot of pain attached with the, with the band breakup, and and as you would know, Brian, these things are never easy. And yeah. so you, can't, I think I jettisoned in my thirty years, forty years, nearly since in my own career, I, I play solid rock and let the Franklin flow and Razor's Edge. But I've kind of jettisoned all that other stuff on the Spirit of Play album. I haven't played them since the 80s. And mm-hmm. so it was really interesting to go back and revisit those songs and actually fall in love with them again, like Factory Man and um, Stand Your Ground and um, um, Children of the Southern Land, um, Roses on the Platform. Like, it's a big album and it, it, it was a big album for a reason. There was a lot of love for that record. It was huge and... So, look, this gives us a chance to go out and say thanks to all those people who, one, bought that album and two, came to see us live and three, you know, gave us a career as artists. I mean, that's a privilege. Mm. Yeah. Did it, did it, now that you've had a chance to go back and look at the album 40 years, because it is the 40th anniversary, there's a lot of songs on that album, you've mentioned a couple then, you did mention Four Weeks Gone, that got lost in the wash of solid rock, and that to me was one of the great pities of that album. From a from a, a retrospective point of view, everyone talks about solid rock. They don't talk about Razor's Edge or Four Weeks Gone or Stand Your Ground. Oh yes, they do. But the hardcore fans are like a completist. You know, they've got it's about the. Will you be playing the Facebook comments? <laughs> yeah, will you be playing this song, <laughs> song or that song? And. But in the mainstream, in the general wash of things over 40 years, Solid Rock has become so emblematic and so iconic. Um, you know, it, it's um, it's kind of, it's it's so, and then, you know, Franklin and Razor's Edge are attached to that too in a way. But Solid Rock has become so big that um, I don't feel like I own it even anymore. I feel like it's gone beyond, you know, beyond wherever it's set out from. I mean, as the writer, I kind of remember writing the song and at the time we weren't anything Goanna. We we were doing gigs in Melbourne trying to make a name for ourselves. You know, it's not like you go, oh, this is going to be a really big song. Hey, Brian, you just write the next song in front of you and it feels important. I thought it was a heavy song and it it wouldn't get much radio play. It says genocide. It's a poop. But, you know, for some reason it got under the wire, it, it escaped into mainstream radio and, um, you know, um, disc jockeys like yourselves, which we don't have anymore, but um, <laughs> Kevin played this, Peter Grace on 3XY in the days when DJs could do that. Yep. Uh, and, you know, that song took off as our first single, Um we thought it might get a bit of airplay and we might get to travel to Sydney and play gigs, but it was just, it was probably too much too quickly, really. As a band, we weren't quite ready for that kind of level of exposure. And, you know, look, it lives on. And look, I, I, like I say, if, if you're going to have a hit with a song, it was an amazing song to have a hit with. It's an unlikely hit. Um, but um, this far down the track, it's, it's so acts as a bridge between Aboriginal Australia and mainstream Australia. It's everyone can kind of belong in that song. It's an important song, that's for sure. Um, you sort of just seem to spring out of nowhere um, for me in that uh, I knew you were doing an album and there was a guy called Tony Butel who was, I think, your engineer on that album. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Tony was doing some stuff for us. And he just kept raving about this album and how big it's going to be and how great it was. And, you know, he seemed to have no doubt that this was going to be, this band was going to be huge. And by listening to you, you sort of thought, oh, well, we'll chuck the song out and see how it goes. So you were unaware, but he was aware that it was going to be huge. Well, he wasn't telling us that, I don't think, but that's interesting. I mean, Tony was a, a, a drummer, a great drummer in, um, yeah. was he Band of Light? Yes, he might have been. I'm not sure. But, yeah, he was a great drummer, that's for sure. in fraternity with Bon Scott too, wasn't he? Might have been. Um, I just knew him mainly as an engineer and, uh, and you know, but he spoke so proudly about the record you were making long before it came out, just while it was being made. And uh, so we all sort of went, oh, okay, we'll better have a listen to this. This is going to be pretty big. And it's sure enough, it was. It's huge. Well, there are a couple so, of- Well done. There were a couple of elements there, Brian. One was um, the producer was Trevor Lucas, who'd just come back to Australia, and Trevor was in Fairport Convention. He was married to Sandy Denny, you know, who was a folk rock icon in, in the UK. Um, Sandy died way too young, tragically, and um, Trevor came back with his young daughter to Australia and then um, he ended up producing the album and he went on to produce um, Red Gum's album too um, that contained um, Only 19 as well. A little bit of rock right. trivia. But <laughs> Trevor Trevor understood um, how to bring, how acoustic guitars and rock music could work together because that's what we've been doing in the UK with Fairport Convention. So I don't know if anyone else in the country at that time had that kind of sensibility here. Mm. We were kind of folkies and in a rock band because you had to be in the 80s. It was all pub music, eh? Hey? Yeah, um, yeah. That was the forum. But, yeah, I know we probably appeared like we came out of nowhere and that's true, but we were just slogging it out in Geelong for years and then we came to Melbourne and we're doing gigs, support gigs for 50 bucks and yes. then give, giving that to the main axe road crew or, you know, a bottle of whiskey or whatever, or having to lump out their gear, or you know, full slavery, and uh, so yeah, it like like you're saying that album, it was well made, and Trevor and Tony both paid attention to making it well, and Tony being a drummer, a song like Solid Rock, I mean, he really, you know, I was really big on this this Tom feel. And he was great at being able to capture. He brought in, I think, about five different snares and he was very particular about getting the drum sound really, really, really right. And it, it is, it still sounds, that record yeah. still sounds great, hey, and um, they paid attention to that. Um, yeah, big song, big sounds. Um, he also thought when I um, wanted to bring Billy Cummins in to play didgeridoo on Solid Rock that I was possibly ruining a perfectly good song. <laughs> <laughs> we had to have a conversation about that. But, you know, that was the times as well. It was also, you know, that the nature of um, Aboriginal people and their status in Australia that was kind of a, an invisible presence in a way. You know, they were there but kind of... Um, so, uh, yeah, we even had to fight really in the studio to get the didge onto that song. And yet, I mean, everyone would assume now that that is a really iconic part of that song. You know, so there were lots of elements 
um, the record company didn't want to release Solid Rock as the first single. What? They wanted to really. No, the, no they, um, the marketing guy wanted to release Cheatin' Man. I could have been forever known as Cheatin' Man. <laughs> uh, it came down in the end. I stuck to my guns. I felt it was important that that was the first thing we re- released. And like I said, I didn't think we'd get much airplay with that song. I thought it was too political and too heavy. They did too. And in the end, I went to Paul Turner, who was the head of Warner's at the time. And Paul had been... Um, he started his career in the music industry when he was 15 as a delivery boy for Festival Records in Sydney. He took Morning of the Earth soundtrack and the film to the west coast of, to, of you know, up, up and down the coast of California in that surf scene and was really, really instrumental in making that a hit and successful. And that's on the back of that, that's why Warner's then asked him to set up a Warner Electro Atlantic in Australia. So... In the end, I went to Paul and he said, listen, Shane, the poets, the artists, the writers, the painters, they paint it, write it, sing it, and, uh, if you like to drink. And, uh, you know, and 20 years later, it's legislation. And, you know, he was pretty right. And so he backed us, he backed us on releasing that and, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, it's an interesting, yeah, they're interesting stories actually how that so, so he wasn't the record executive who said to you later on after the second album, I think, just go and write another fucking solid rock, will you? Same person, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said to him, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, that's the music industry for you. <laughs> well, you famously yeah, described it as the music industry. You were tired because the music industry was being run by used car salesmen. Yeah, look, there was a bit of a cowboy industry back then, hey, Brian? I mean, yeah. America at that time, it was different. Um, there were people in, in you know, it was still a business and an industry. Yeah, we, that's what it is. You know, we do it as musos because we just, we can't do anything else or we're unemployable in any other field mm. or we just do it because this is what we love. Um, we are problematic. We're artists. We... We're not meant to fit in, you know. Yeah. You can't put a square peg in a round hole, or but the industry is a business, and it yeah. will find a way to fit us into an improbable place and make money out of us. But yeah, and there there are some great people in the industry who are music lovers, but there are lots of people who just saw it as fame and fortune, ambition, you know, greed, mm. commerce. Yep. Yeah. Just do that same thing again and make some more money, and uh, it doesn't always work like that. Yeah. We were talking about the producing um, Spirit of Place, but you've actually produced quite a few artists yourself, Archie Roach being one of them, um, and a whole lot of other things. How do you like producing, and what do you sort of bring to the table as a producer? I've, I've gave it away um, probably five or ten years, but, yeah, I, I went down that track Kind of by accident, um, the first guy was a guy from Croker Island, Aboriginal fellow from Croker Island, who asked me to do um, an EP for him. That was back in the 90s, I think, early 90s, late 80s. You know, I probably ruined his career. But no, it was great. I worked with a great, <laughs> I worked with a great engineer, with Phil Butts and Yo at Sing Sing in Melbourne. Yeah. And... I guess I felt I'd learned a bit over the years making records myself and often it's about 
steering people through the process because it can be a pretty intimidating reality when you first go to yeah. make a record and go to the studio. Hey, Brian, it's it's daunting yeah. when you don't know the rules. Very different to live. But the other thing too is um, I, I think the thing I felt I could bring to the table as a producer was the idea that um, it's about creating the atmosphere for the great performance to happen. I really believe that. And that's an art form in itself. Um, you've got to have the technical stuff right, but sometimes the technical thing can be so intimidating that the artist is in a, is almost stiff and frozen when it comes to the performance. So creating an atmosphere where everyone feels relaxed and comfortable and like they're sitting around a lounge room or in their kitchen or something to deliver a, a really great performance, um, uh, that's an art form in itself. And setting that scene is really important to capture. Spirit doesn't want to be captured, you know, so you've got to sneak up on it. And um, sometimes it's it's like a lot of times working with Jimmy Chai, you know, who's the brilliant creator of Brand New Day, that musical that then became the film. And Jimmy yeah. was like a genius than anyone I think I've ever met. But you would get one take with Jimmy. And when I was working on his second, um, on his uh, Corrugation Road album in the follow-up to Brand New Day in Broome, you know, I would have a microphone set up in the studio there and I would have it all tested and set up myself so it was just ready to go and hit record. And because Jimmy would walk, walk in at any time of day or night and he'd just turn up and you go, this is a moment to capture a vocal performance. And... Uh, and so you'd very casually have to say, oh, yeah, do you feel like singing something? He'd say, yeah, let's have a go at such and such. And he'd wander in there and say, oh, okay, let's get a few levels then. Just have a run through and we'll get some levels. And he'd sing the song and he would give you the performance of a lifetime. Wow. And if you didn't capture it that first time, it was over. It was gone. So you had to be ready for it. And, um, and you know, some of the, those performances still... Um, make the hair stand up on my arms, you know, when I listen back to them. It makes a lot of sense what you say about setting the mood. Um, we spoke to uh, Mark Opitz and um, he's really big on, you know, he's very good with all the technical stuff, but, you know, he'd make sure that the band was playing table tennis or we'd play cricket in the hall or something. Just do something that was fun so that we'd be relaxed and having a good time about it. So it sounds like... Um, you know, you sort of cut from the same gym a bit, a little bit, because um, yeah, it's about getting that performance and get getting the artists comfortable to give that performance. So yeah, well done. Yeah, you've got to have the artists trust. The same working with Archie. You know, um, you, you know, you've got to be where Archie feels like you know he's relaxed, he's comfortable, he's got good musicians around him. He, and he's supported and understood culturally as well, you know. So those things, um, you know, working, watching he and Paul um, do uh, a song on that Journey album, Paul Kelly. Um, yeah, oh, they're yeah. precious moments. And they're, it's only a moment that's frozen in time forever then. Um, so capturing that very special performance is, um, you know, whether it's a very subtle, quiet, delicate performance moment or whether it's a full-on yeah, rock and band, you've got to have the right energy in the room 
So yeah, I love. I did love that experience. But being a producer is also every album takes a year. Oh, and it's a big commitment from the beginning to yeah. the end. From from the idea of the album, developing that up, and then to the recording, the mixing, the editing, the mastering, the release. Um, you know, seeing it through, it takes pretty much a year, as it does for your own projects pretty much. Inevitably, I got to a stage where I realised being a producer was actually stopping me from being an artist myself, and so I had to I had to give it away. Another great artist I worked with is a guy called Tonchi McIntosh, and, you know, that album he made, Bridges, he kept sending me these songs. I met him on the Farnham tour in 93 in Newcastle, and he kept sending me songs. I had 30 songs, and they were all as good as the last one. And I said to him, you've got to record these songs. And he said, oh, would you, would you help me? And I, they were so, they felt so important, those songs, so great. I, I felt kind of bound to do it. But I didn't have the power to get him out into the mainstream or to, oh. for the record company to do that project. And, um, but that album for me remains, I think, one of the, the greatest unknown Australian albums I think I've ever heard. Okay. It's funny that, isn't it? Yeah. Some of my favourite albums weren't hits at all, but, um, you know, yeah, yeah you, you just find these little gems and you go, wow, this is such a great album, and you think, why the hell wasn't this huge? Because the songs are so good and the band's good and and it's just, you know, there's, there's certainly a, a big element of luck, I suppose, with, yeah. you know, where the songs get played and stuff. It's, um, you need a lot of ingredients, things to go right before you get the big hit. That's absolutely right. I think that's true. Sometimes it, you look back and you go, you know, there's a lot of accidents involved, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and a lot of good luck and a lot of planning and all that too. But yeah. sometimes things just get through, hey. Yeah. So Shane, do yeah. you, do, uh, is is Goanna a happy place for you now and this this incarnation of it? It's it's a really really happy place. It's been really lovely. I mean, we're all old people now, you know. Like this far down the track, we've had it's a really healing time. Uh, working with Rose and Mars and Graham, you know, um, we lost Warwick Harwood, who was in the band in that spirit of place time and in those early Geelong days. Uh, we lost Mick O'Connor not long ago, who, the Reverend. Brilliant, you know, Hammond organ player. Ross Hannaford, who played on yeah. Razor's Edges. There's so many, um, you know, these are sobering times and it's a reflective time. So it is lovely to have the opportunity to go back, visit that album again. And really half a million people bought that album Um it's a lovely opportunity to go back and say thank you and sing those songs and go, um, I wouldn't have done it before now. I was too hell-bent on my own career as Shane Howard and moving forward yeah. as an artist, not going back. But I think I want to say thank you to people. They they gave me a career as an artist. I, it's an absolute privilege. Um, so, yeah, let's go and play those songs for people and exactly the way they remember the band and the album and, like, but it, it's live. It's in three dimensions. And yeah, am I loving it? Yeah, I am. I'm hearing those songs again, singing Mars and Rose when they sing those harmonies. Everyone's more experienced. We know what we're doing.
with the oils, doing those shows with the oils, the pillars that we stood on at that time, like Aboriginal rights and the environment with like the Franklin flow, those issues were urgent back then. I mean, now we're on the precipice, really, and they're more urgent and more real than ever. Am I still committed to those things? Um, hell yeah. You know, do they matter? Yes, they do. They really matter. I mean, we're consigning our children and our grandchildren to a living hell on earth with climate change. I mean, we're artists. There's not a lot we can do, you know, but we can be the conscience of politicians and people who can affect change. That's all we can do. Um, and, you know, there's um, the same with Aboriginal people. What happened at Yundamu in the last few years, that young fellow being shot, um, you know, it, it's a legal issue, but I mean, what are police doing with guns out in remote communities? These things should be about relationship. Um, Aboriginal yeah. people are the most incarcerated people on earth. All my Aboriginal brothers and sisters who I met over the last 40 years in the wake of Solid Rock, they're all dying young. So many up north are dying from diabetes, way too young, in their 40s and 50s. Wow. Uh, losing my friends too young. You know, and have we come a long way? Yeah, we have. We, we've done incredible things in, in, in the last, you know, and I think it's accelerated in the last five or ten years. NITV has given Australian mm. people a window into Aboriginal Australia and the issues. I think. Yep. 
unique way. Is there more we can do? Absolutely. Like, let's get this ship shaped. Like, let's get to a republic. Let's get to a treaty. Let's yeah. get... We haven't even got to the starting line as a nation yet. We're still tipping at, at, at our forelocks to the Queen, you know, to a foreign boss of the country. Like, come on, let's get this show sorted before we're dead and gone. I, I want to see that stuff happen, yeah, absolutely. And I still feel really strongly about it. And if Goanna gives me a chance to have a microphone, a bigger microphone to say those things out loud then that's a privilege that I, I, I will um, gladly yeah, be an advocate for. Yeah. You've, you've written a new verse for um, uh, Solid Rock, is that right? I have. Well, you know, um, nothing's ever set in stone. That's funny. No pun <laughs> yeah, songs keep changing. Is that true, Brian? Like you keep – you're still reworking them, hey? Yeah, yeah. Tim too, although the bigger ones um, – some of them I wouldn't mark around with because people say, well, hang on, that's not how you did it on the record. But um, but the sort of the uh, the ones that weren't, say, big hit singles, I'm quite happy to make them more interesting for myself or, you know, change that word because that was, I wrote that when I was 19 and it's a bit immature, so we'll, we'll get rid of that and we'll put something else in. Absolutely. And I especially find it when I'm talking about the girl that was 15, and I think, well, I can't sing that anymore. She's got to be 50 now. So <laughs> there's those sort of things that I change, you know. She was just 15 when she left school. Well, and she's 50 now and she's, yeah, you do. You do change things and, you know, fix them, I suppose. You did so. You did a version of uh, Solid Rock with Scott Dullo. Is that right? That's correct. And look, I, um, and Scotty did a very different interpretation of it, actually, which is really, it caught my ear when he said it to me and he asked me if I would do it with him. And I loved the, the way he kind of came at it very, very differently. It was unique. And there's been lots of versions. Everyone's, uh, lots of people done beautiful versions. I, I got a, sent a version by um, Cherokee Indian Mob from America. Um, oh, great. American drums and and bells and instrumentation. Uh, Lauren Kate, beautiful uh, kind of singer-songwriter, did a really very beautiful feminine acoustic version of it that was very restrained, um, okay. that powerful too in its own way. So Scotty Darlow, yeah, he's a dude, um, great version, and it was somewhere between Goanna and uh, U2 and, and his own unique take on it. But just saying again, I, it's true what you say about Solid Rock. I, I didn't touch the original part of the song in a way. Um, I put a, I mess around with the intro and sometimes we stretch the dig out and we play with that. Um, yeah. Create long solo sections for didgeridoo or yidaki in the, in the, after, in, after the solo. But you keep the essence of the song the same. But I did add another verse in, Kevin, that goes, um, the Terranalia slide spread like a cancer. Eddie Marbo brought the truth. He brought the law. He brought the answer. Go back to the centre, deep into the heart, to truth and treaty, and then we'll all be standing on solid rock. But it goes wow. into... Then it goes into Puli Kumpunka Ngaranyi, Mantamil Milpa Katu, Nyuntukuranka Ngaranyi, Walpa Kampo Kuchaparani, Walpa Pulka Ringanyi, which is the Pinjara chorus or um, translation that was done some years ago by Trevor Adamson and Ruby James. And now there's a, a, a 
Palawakani version, a Tasmanian language version, and now after um, the 26th of January, there's a Gadigal Sydney version of that too. I, I think there's a Wiradjuri version. So there's all these uh, language versions being done by Aboriginal people um, as the song... It, that's what I mean. It feels like it's gone beyond me to mm. uh, to somewhere else altogether. It's almost grown its own legs, hasn't it? It sure has, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I was a kid from a town of 300 people just down the road from where I live. Um, you know, it's a lot to... It, it's a lot to, um, when you stop and reflect, you go, how... What the hell is the kid, little white kid from, you know, Dennington doing writing that song, and it, it's um, and that it that it has so embedded and gone on, you know, forty years later. It, it, it's um, sometimes it feels a bit overwhelming, actually. Uh, it's certainly life changing for you. There's about three hundred different uh, First Nation dialects, isn't there, Shane? Is that right? Three hundred? Yes, a bit of work to do yet. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so a few more, few more versions coming. Another two hundred ninety-five versions coming. Yeah, uh, I know. It, yeah, it, it's um, but there's also this uh, in that from nineteen eighty-two when it was released on, and then we travelled around Australia. Everywhere we went, there'd be three, four, five Aboriginal people come to the gigs and check it out. Check out what are these white fellas on about? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and then you'd be up till you know one thirty, two, three in the morning talking to people, hearing the stories, you know, and yeah. and until you couldn't be proud of your country anymore. Uh, uh, you know, it, it and the, they hurt. Those stories hurt when you really, and you can walk away, I suppose, or not. And I I couldn't walk away from it. Um, but, you know, the journey over 40 years, there's also the humour, Aboriginal humour, you know, and when, you, when you're in that world and you're hearing Aboriginal people laugh about us as white villains, yeah. it's, it's a pretty revealing reality, you know, to go, what these white fellows on about? What do they believe? They got they believe anything or they're just, what, what, what they on about? They, it's... But, and not just, they're also laughing at themselves as well. It's a very beautiful reality. And, you know, I've been incredibly privileged to to be shown things and um, taken into confidence and trust um, all over the country. And it's so enriched my life, you know, and my family's life um, that, well, uh you know, I found in Australia, I, I realised I was in someone else's country, you know, and yeah. we stole the place for a start. And But, you know, there's a way to belong and we're on that journey. We're all on that journey, you know, and we're all at different stages of that journey of understanding what happened in our history and where we are and how we got here. And, you know, that's an unfolding lesson and truth and history for us all and uh, there's no doubt I, I wish it would happen quicker but we'll get there it's taken a while but I have no doubt we'll get there and we'll all be the richer for it I think we're going to build we have the opportunity to build a really great country that is a is really a beacon to the rest of the world about how to do things the right way how to reconcile with our First Nations people and to build a nation, a great democracy, 
you know, be a bit of an emblem in in a world that's pretty where democracy is pretty shaky at the moment, you know. But you know, we have compulsory voting. We elect our upper house. You know, Canada doesn't do that. The UK is lords and ladies. You know, um, we we have a unique democracy here that goes back to the Eureka Stockade, something that's dear to my heart. Um, you know, we we've built something unique here, and we're we're still knocking it into shape. We're panel beating and spot welding and just getting it into shape. But we're nearly at a really good starting point, I think, to go. You know what? We're our independent own republic nation, and. Um, I hope I see that before I'm dead and gone. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been bloody uh, terrific to catch up with you. Terrific to hear that you're still as passionate about all these things as you were 40 years ago. And uh, and that and that song and that album and those things still uh, still uh, have great life in them and, uh, and great expectations, I guess, from all of us of, of where we are heading. So thanks so much for your time, Shane. Really appreciate it. Thanks, yeah, Kevin. Thank you, hey, thanks, Brian. Great to see you. Great to talk. There you go, Shane Howard, uh, Goanna. They are touring all around the place. So no matter, literally, wherever you're listening to this, you'll be able to see them live unless, of course, you're listening to this in your toilet. Then you won't see them live there. But they're doing Cairns, they're doing the Gold Coast, they're doing Brisbane, they're doing Alice Springs, Sydney, Newcastle, WA, Tasmania. They're doing the entire country to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the album. So, uh, And if you are in your toilet, Stay there because I am doing a tour of toilets. <laughs> and the Brian Mannix Dunny Run, and I'll be playing all of the hits in Dunny near you. So come on down; it'll be shit house because <laughs> of the very nature of the game. Yeah, from the poor, from the from, you've gone from the poor house to the penthouse, or some, from the outhouse to the penthouse to the poor house, and now officially to the shit house. That's right. Brian Mannix's Dunny Run, the shithouse tour. Coming soon to a Dunny near you. We look forward to it. All right, let's get to our next guest, who is the man we talked about at the top of the program. Uh, I love that song, How Could You Not Love Halfway Hotel by Voyager, back to 1979. Let's have a listen to it, and then let's have a listen to the man who wrote it and sang it, Paul French. All right.
for doing this because we've been hanging out to uh, to catch up with you and have a chat about uh, about this uh, you know your career but this fabulous song that you uh, that you've given us yeah well thank you um yeah halfway hotel i assume you're talking about absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, what do you want to know about it well where is it a, is it a song that um uh, that was an easy song to write did you labor over it did it just pop into your head or tell us about how how the song actually came to you i was living in the gatehouse um and, and i had a piano out in the back room which is very drafty and i used to, in the winter i used to play with the with my coat on it was so cold and there were a few mice around to keep me company. <laughs> and um, I didn't really have a problem writing the song, no. It, it kind of just came to me. I mean, total fantasy, driving driving a girl across country, you know, in the desert. But, I mean, I don't even drive, so I still haven't learned to drive. So it's <laughs> quite strange. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but it, I, I didn't really struggle. There's one or two lines I seem to recall that I've had to put a bit of work in, you know, to make them rhyme. But generally, it all just kind of flowed. So I was very lucky. I knew it had something, because everybody I played it to, they said, oh, yeah, I really like that, you know. So, uh, including Tony Hatch, uh, who wrote the Neighbours theme with Jackie Trent. Uh, he actually uh, arranged for us to record the... The song in uh, in 1977, and it was originally released then under the name Paul French Connection, but it did absolutely nothing. We were quite used to that at that time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and then we re-released it much later on in 1979. So why'd you got in with, why'd you do that when given that it given it didn't work in 77? What was the catalyst behind uh, having another crack at it under the Voyager name? Well, because uh, we took on a manager and he still thought, he said, I'm sure this can be a hit, you know, and so he stuck with it. And we got a guy called Derek Nicholl uh, from Mountain Records, who at that time, I mean, they're defunct now, but they had uh, Nazareth, I don't know if you remember them, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Alex Harvey band. 
Yeah, so it was sort of quite heavy band, but so we were a little bit sort of more gentle. But uh, Derek Nicholl was very much into it, and he managed to get hold of Gus Dudgeon, and away we went, you know. So we had another go at it, and it was a lot better version. Obviously, it had a bit more oomph to it, you know. Did you change well, the lyrics, or was it the same lyrics as, as you'd originally written? Exactly the same lyrics. Well, well <laughs> same arrangement. One of the things I like about the lyrics is that it's a really great story and these days people don't really write songs that have a story. It's well, um, that's true, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and that's the true essence of what a ballad is. It's a story. People think a ballad is a slow song and it's not. It's, it's a story. And, you know, yeah. these days people just write songs about, oh, you broke my heart and I treated you bad, but, you know, I deserved it. It's all about hey, self I've written a few of those, let me tell you. <laughs> we all have. Um, it, it's, it's just a really, really great story. And it makes me wonder, like, like I like bands like Squeeze too that write really great stories. I sort of wonder when I listen to this lyric, I go, Wow, did you have any of the ambitions to write a book or something? Because I, I think clearly you could. Is that because it's a great story? Uh, well, um, it would be a short book, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, I suppose, yeah, I could get all my lyrics together and uh, release them in a book. I've written quite a few over the years. But, uh, no, I was very lucky. And, it, and as I say, it just kind of came to me, the story. You know, I just went off in this fantasy, and there it was. And, uh, you know, life ain't so hard on a credit card. The credit cards were quite new then. That was when I originally yeah. wrote it. It was about 1976. You know, so I think there's only American Express then and things like that. So, I don't know, it just rolled off the tongue. I was very lucky. But, you know, it's interesting because... Go on. I was going to say... It would make, if you just got that, the lyrics of that and so use that, okay, we're making a, a road movie about this song. Here's your script, go away and write it. I just think it's it yeah. just, when I listen to it, it's it's like watching a little movie and I, and I love that about it. Yeah. I, and, well, um, you know, it's a yeah. shame. It's a shame we didn't do a, a video along those lines, you know. I mean, the video mm. was very odd. It was Storm Thorson, who's who was from uh, Hypnosis. I mean, he's a very clever guy, but he just didn't want to get involved in that side of the story at all. It's a shame in a way. And yeah, uh, I, I don't know, that picture, it particularly suits Australia. And I also thought, you know, Southern States of America, uh, I was thinking along those lines as well. And it's a shame it didn't take off in America, but um, in Australia, you got the picture. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very oh, pleased about that. And it was actually, <laughs> it, it was bigger here in Australia than it was anywhere else in the world, wasn't it? It was. Um, uh, South Africa liked it. There's a bit of desert there as well. Yeah. Uh, it was number one in South Africa. I think we only got to number 10 in Australia. I'm not sure. The album was a big hit in Australia, though. That was number one. Yeah, it was massive. Uh, so we were very pleased with that as well. Yeah. So it's a great place um, for us. I, I'm, I'm a singer too, Paul, and um, I had to do a show probably 12 months ago and the song that they yeah. selected for me to do was Halfway Hotel, which I was delighted to do. But I think I had to take yeah. it down about six tones to be able to sing it because it's, you've got a very high voice and a beautiful voice. Oh, God, but yeah. it, was, it was way too wow. high to me. 
for me. <laughs> was in D flat of all keys. <laughs> Don't ask me why. Oh, okay. But there it was, which is, and uh, so I was singing the top D flat in full voice. Now yeah, I'm lucky if I can get up to a G below that. Yeah. So you know, uh, the last time I sang it, I had to t- take it down to G to play it in G from D flat. So <laughs> there we are. Uh, the voice I, isn't up there anymore, and I had a, a, a real high falsetto on top of all that, but that's totally gone now. I haven't got a falsetto at all now, so it's a shame. But um, yeah, I could I could reach it quite easily in those days. Yeah, I, I think I think I had to sing it in S, <laughs> even lower than what you're doing it now. Hey, but well, I'm pleased you sang it. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> no no matter um, the key, it doesn't matter. It's a wonderful song, and um, when I sang it, it just went over beautifully because everybody goes, "Oh yeah, I remember this." They love it, and as as, <laughs> as do I, me and Kev. Um, I do, it's one of those songs. Um, uh, it still gets played on the radio here, not as much as it probably should, but it's one of those songs that leaps out of the radio. When you when you did it, did you think, uh, okay, we got something here? This, I mean, you said you knew it was a bit special, but did you know how special it was going to be that we're still talking about it in 2022? Uh, no, I had no idea, no. I mean, I was hoping for a, a hit over here, obviously, as well. Um, and we got to, I think it was only 32 in the charts or something, but... In, on Airplay, you're talking about it comes out at you. Um, Airplay in this country, we were number one Airplay for about three weeks. So it got so much coverage. And apparently they say that, I don't know if this is true, but they say there was a problem with uh, the distribution and the actual yes. production of the single. Yeah. People would go into the record shops and they couldn't buy it because it wasn't there and that was why I didn't make it I don't know how true that is but just out of interest uh, Paul were were you with EMI (laughs) because I had a similar experience with EMI and I ended up walking away from them going EMI stands for every mistake imaginable I'm getting radio where you're playing and you can't buy it how frustrating is that (laughs) but yeah but, no, um, it's pretty darn annoying, let's say. Hey, Paul, did, <laughs> yeah. did, did the song change your life? Um, I wouldn't say, Well, uh, for a few years we toured on the strength of it all around England. Never came to Australia. No. But uh, we, which we should have done. That was a big mistake. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, it did. Uh, but uh, for a few years, yeah, because we got to tour with various people. ELO was the biggest one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was in 81. We also played a festival in Zarbrook and Queen were headlining. We were on, uh, it was an all-day festival. We were on fairly early. <laughs> um, <laughs> Queen were on last, of course. <laughs> um, but we never even got to meet them, but it was a great experience, you know, being on the same bill with them. Uh, oh, we yes. toured with Gary Moore, who oh, yeah. t- teamed up very briefly with Greg Lake from um, Emerson, uh, Lake and Palmer. Yep. Um, um, I don't know how successful that union was, but they, they did a tour together and we were the support for them. Uh, Gary knew, Gary Moore was great. Uh, he was a nice guy. And um, yeah, ELO was the big one though because we did uh, two nights in Wembley Arena. And oh, then 
Birmingham NEC, which that we were there for a week because ELO are from Birmingham. And so they had loads of fans who wanted to come and see them. So we did a whole week there. Uh, that sat about, I don't know, 13,000 people or something. Oh. Uh, so that was a great experience. But then after that, I mean, the band split, really. Um, we, we, uh, that was on, we were promoting our third album. And then uh, after that, the third album did nothing. And so after that, we did nothing as well. Yeah. <laughs> What's your training? What got you into music and songwriting? Because if you're writing classical pieces, you're obviously, you know, you're not just a hack that's yeah, picking up the guitar classical. and banging it. Four songs, you know, four uh, chords. Yeah, no, I was classically trained on piano. I mean, I didn't take any exams, but I was classically mm-hmm. trained. Uh, and so I, and I was always into classical music, the little pieces I had to learn, you know, Bach, Haydn. Um, and I was really into classical music. And I was still playing it even when I was writing Halfway Hotel. I don't play do, it anymore. Do you think that that classical training helped influence the song? Um, or just, you know, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I learned certainly more than four chords, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I like to use as many chords as I could, maybe a little over the top at times. But I, I don't know, it just, I felt that I could express myself more. The more with the more chords, the more rise and fall you get with the song, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, no, that's exactly what I felt. It's a great record. And but it, it's as you say, it's it's quite complex. Was it was it easy yeah. to play live, or was it always a bit of a challenge to play live? No, I, no. I mean, I played it so many times uh, before we went out live that uh, mm. I was very used to it. I could do it with my eyes closed, you know. But uh, it's funny because uh, getting back to Tony Hatch, yeah, he <laughs> said how much he enjoyed the song, and he said. What I can't understand is that you listen to it and you don't realise that there are odd numbers of bars. You know, everything's either four, eight bars, 12 bars, you know what I mean? And he yes. said, like, for instance, the introduction, the instrumental introduction, that's seven bars long. And then the, the first section of the verse is seven bars long. And, uh, you know, I mean, I realised I'd done it, but when I actually, you know, when I analysed it, but... When I wrote it, I wasn't even thinking along those lines. I didn't do it on purpose. It was just the way I felt it worked, you know. And, and, and then you go into the interlude between the, the the first chorus and the second verse, and that's only five bars long. And so it's all weird, but it just felt right at the time, you know. It felt natural. When I had to sing it at this gig, and I was delighted to sing it, you know, about five times <laughs> yeah. down from where you did. But I, I yeah. you said, look, this is one of the most difficult arrangements I've ever come across because there's seven bars, now there's five, and there's, is there an extra line on a chorus or an extra line here and there? I just remember being, wow, this isn't your standard four, four, you know, four lines of verse, four lines of chorus, four lines of bridge. It's quite a complicated arrangement. It is, my, yeah, and there's some me, interesting chords in there as well. There's some interesting little chords slipped in every now and then, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, flattened, I have to play them. Oh, flattened yeah. tenth. How about you? All right. <laughs> Actually, it's not. It's a sharpened ninth. 
What's the difference between a flattened flattened tenth and a sharpened knife? I've got no idea. <laughs> I don't know, but I want you to send me a photo of your fingers playing it so that I can learn how to play a flattened tenth or a sharpened knife. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's a great song Just from someone who knows nothing about music whatsoever When you hear that song you just go You bloody beauty, that's a ripper Just makes oh, you feel good well. How nice, that's great It makes me feel good uh, It is, well, it's it a makes, great song It makes us feel good And the best part about a good song is It takes you on a journey And yeah. no song takes us on a journey yeah. Better than this song Which is about a journey and um, well, all the intricacies yeah. with it. It's just a wonderful lyric and, you know, a bastard of an arrangement, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much. No, our pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, Paul. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a great song. In the annals of time, it, it sits there and proudly sits there. So uh, thank you so much for joining us on our, on our show. Thank well, you, mate. Thank you, guys. Uh, and uh, good, all the best. good luck and good health for the future. Yes, and you guys. Thanks for spending some time with us, Paul. Thanks, really Paul. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, Paul French, Halfway Hotel Voyager. I love that song. Oh, I love it, Kev. I yep. love it. Yep, I love it Don't too. Don't get enough of it. Uh, now, how's the, how's the gigging going and the, uh, you know, all the, uh, the, the, the professional side of the Brian Mannix life? How's that going? Well, look, the professional side of the life is going well. We did a wonderful gig in... Um, at the Bull Street Festival in uh, Bendigo last night, and it was out in the street, and it was a beautiful night, and there's lots of people. And the professional side of my gigging is going very well. Right. It's what happens after the gig <laughs> that it becomes very unprofessional. Like, have a look at me. Look at me. I have bad time. <laughs> oh, God. Can I, just, can, I just paint, can I just paint a picture for the podcast listeners? Brian's hair is, uh, I would have to say, looking like it's, uh, it's just seen a ghost. Um, it's, it's white and it's in a prone position. It's in a, 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 uh, a state of excitement, not generally uh, uh, with hair that isn't either at the end of a, some sort of electrical uh, pulse or um, being being tortured <laughs> of some degree. So looking like that, you've got the big uh, the big yellow glasses on today. So I can't see the eyes. So I'm not sure how the eyes are going. But uh, apart from that, you look all right. But the yeah, the oh. hair and the the hair and the demeanour is a bit. Uh, I'd say um, dusty. I still think, um, and I mean know, more 20, Springfield than Martin. And on the after show antics are fine for a twenty-three-year-old, but for someone my age, it becomes a three-day commitment. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I'm, I'm slow. I'll slowly learn that lesson, and um, hopefully next week's show I'll um, be in tip-top shape. Yep. Well, we thank Shane Howard for his time on uh, on this podcast. We really enjoyed having a having a chat to Shane and go and see the band and and revisit uh, not only the the Spirit of Place album but revisit Shane's catalogue. He's done fourteen or fifteen solo albums, done a couple of other albums. There's some uh, albums that pay homage to his Irish heritage. Um, of course, uh, the stuff that he's done with the, the First Nations people is is just fantastic. So, uh, a body of work there that is well worth uh, delving into and uh, and finding out more about. And to Paul French uh, from Voyager, fantastic to catch up with him and have a chat about that song. I've I've loved that song forever. I do too. I think it's great, and um, I can't wait to see who we have on next week's show. Oh, okay. Oh, yes, I do know, it's an Australian. It's an Australian. Uh, couple of well, there's two. We could almost choose one or two songs. They had two monster hits. This band, 
uh, and their singer these days lives in Thailand. We've uh, we've got to him, uh, and uh, we're going to. I was ch- in even worse shape last week <laughs> when we spoke to him. You're telling me? I had about two hours sleep. You're you're, you're telling me that. <laughs> I really don't think Sunday's our best day to do this, Kev. Uh, You're supposed to rest on the Sunday, you fool, not fall down in a screaming heap. That's not what rest well, means. Well, I, on a Saturday, I go hard knowing it's a day of rest, but um, it should be a day of rehabilitation or something. Yes. I'm not sure. So uh, anyway. we'll, we'll let you know more about uh, our next guests uh, in the future, but uh, thank you for being part of uh, this podcast. Thanks once again to Murcotts, one three hundred five 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 seven six. Do you do everybody around you a favour and go and uh, talk to them? Go and check out their website, mercots.edu.au, and be a better driver. Everyone Good will be people, happy. Though. That's right. Well Every, said, Keith. Everyone will be happier than that. And look after yourself, Mr. Mannix. And uh, we I will, shall try. We will catch you on the next life of Brian. Dot dot dot. Mannix. That was. That was. Oh boy. Bad Jack. Stop it. I'm tired. It's okay.